Welcome to the seventh of these lectures on natural capital. Uh, we've been looking at the principles to use, to apply uh, the natural capital concept to the environment more generally. And we looked at the idea that public goods uh, will not be provided by markets, that much of our natural capital takes the form of public goods, and therefore the principle that public money should be uh, provided for provision of public goods, and especially when it comes to the agricultural sector. In the last lecture, we looked at the second principle, which is about polluter pays, polluter pays principle, and uh, looked at uh, the issues of who the polluters are, um, and the principles by which such charges might be uh, designed. And outcome of that is the conclusion uh, that polluter pays would be a radical way to improve the efficiency of uh, the economy as well as uh, substantially change the relative prices in the economy uh, and therefore produce much more environmentally beneficial outcomes. The third building block is the principle of net environmental gain. And that's the subject of this lecture. And it's all about uh, when and how we can harm the natural environment and what consequences follow from that harm to the idea that when such harm is done, compensation should and must be paid. So the way to think about this is to start off with the idea of uh, holding the line on our natural capital and indeed enhancing our natural capital and the natural environment. And to think what that involves, and in particular, why that involves the idea of compensation. Then to stand back and realistically look at the scale of the damage that's coming. So what is going to get harmed? And how do we decide what it is that can be harmed uh, and what obviously can't be harmed? Then we have to think about how we calculate the value of that harm and how we calculate the compensation that must be uh, made to uh, ensure that we don't end up worse off. And then we need to think about the money that comes from compensation, who it's spent on, who spends it, who gets it, and then how the regime is institutionalized so that we have uh, a net environmental gain principle throughout the economy. So that's the kind of agenda. It's as with the polluter pays principle and public goods, it's in one sense, you know, uh, simple idea, compensation, but the practicalities really do matter and they make a great deal of difference as to how precisely uh, such a principle is implemented. So let's start at the beginning. What are we trying to do here? Uh, and the answer to that question is what's the overall to, to, to that question is about what the overall objective is. And it's pretty clear what that is. In the 25 year plan, it is that we should leave the natural environment in at least as good state as we found it. In fact, we should leave it in a better state for the uh, uh, future generations to inherit from us. Uh, and, and, and that's what we're trying to do. And what that means in practice is that we need to apply uh, an overarching interpretation. And that is that the 
aggregate natural capital should not be allowed to go down over time. And in particular, uh, the natural capital which should not be allowed to decline in aggregate is the renewable natural capital. And recall that it's the renewable bits that matters most because those are the uh, bits that nature can provide for free forever and carry on generating, provided we don't go below the thresholds and in practice, provided we don't go uh, below the safe limits above those thresholds. So that's what we're trying to do. And since it's obvious, uh, absolutely obvious to almost everyone, but the most diehard environmentalists, we are going to go on doing damage to the aggregate of natural capital. And therefore it follows axiomatically that if we're to meet the aggregate capital rule, and we have to leave the environment in a better state for future generations, where we are doing damage, we must compensate with improvements. And here's the crucial bit, not just that are going to offset the damage done, but more than offset the damage done because we want safe limits above the thresholds. Because recall, if we fall below the thresholds, it's asymmetrically bad news because we lose all the benefits of the future. So we must have compensation. We must have compensation which is better than the damage that's being done. So realistically, there's a lot of damage coming and we need to work out what that damage is, take a realistic perspective of what's going to happen. We have to work out which bits we can allow to be harmed, and then we have to work out what the value of that harm is. So what's the damage coming? Well, in Britain, uh, we have all the characteristics of an incredibly densely populated country. Indeed, it's extremely densely populated in core bits like the southeast and the great uh, industrial con conurbations of the north and then we have some very empty areas which are uh, uplands and um, uh, comprise much of north wales the lake district the pennines the southwest moors exmoor dartmoor and so on and to this very densely populated uh, country we are going to add about 10 million more people over the next 20 years. And that's almost inevitably going to happen. Why? Well, despite the fact that Europeans appear no longer either welcome or willing to come to our country, the total immigration is rising, not falling. And the Europeans who are not coming or the Europeans are leaving are being more than uh, replaced by immigration from outside the European area. That's the immigration that we've always had control of, but the evidence is pretty clear that there's not much political will to control it. And that may be a good or a bad thing, but at um, 250, 300,000 people net immigration per annum, uh, you can see that adds a lot of people quite quickly. Now, on top of that, the characteristics of the immigration over the last uh, 10, 20 years has been to uh, tilt the mix of population demographics a bit more towards the younger end, which means more children than there otherwise would have been. And that means that the indigenous growth rate 
um, of the population plus the immigration together paints this picture overall of moving from about you know, 60, 65 million to about 70, 75 million. Now, all those people expect to get better off. People assume that uh, economic growth will go on at 2 to 3% per annum. Well, 2 to 3% per annum means that in uh, about 25 years' time, the uh, GDP of the country will roughly have doubled. So if you add that doubling of um, incomes, translate that into a doubling of consumption, and all the infrastructure that 10 million more people will require, 250, 300,000 houses per annum are planned for the next decade. For example, HS2, uh, a whole host of large infrastructure uh, projects, road improvements, uh, local rail improvements, uh, congestion, transport, etc., uh, schools, hospitals. Uh, you just go across any bits of the infrastructure and just add a chunk on top of it, and that is going to take up bits of our natural environment, quite a lot of it, in fact. And that's why we have. You know, large number of houses now being built on the green belt, and that's why we have uh, substantial uh, pressures coming on even the more remote parts of the country. So put all that together, uh, a lot of harm is going to be done. And so the question is, which bits can we safely harm, or rather, nothing's particularly safe about harming, but which ones, which bits are less worrying in terms of the harm that we can impose? and which bits should we really get concerned about. And so if you look at this, we have a planning system, we have a uh, mitigation hierarchy, and that remains in place. But there are fundamental issues to address overarching this framework, which are whether we want to take a top-down and an environmental systems view, or whether we want to look at each a development in their own rights. And classically, what we do in planning is to say, so somebody wants to take on, take over some green fields and put some houses on it. What are the value of those green fields vis-a-vis -vis the benefits of the houses and which bits of infrastructure might you add to it? And then we think about compensation. But of course, that's not the right way to think about a natural environment because you can take each chunk out, each bit of field one by one by one, and suddenly you find you don't have a green belt left. Suddenly you find the park's gone uh, because each incremental bit that you take can be justified, but nobody ever asked the question, so what's the system within which these bits fit? So you do have to take some top-down views about which bits of our natural assets as environmental systems are critical. And the right way to do that is to ask which bits are the environmental systems that support renewable natural capital and particularly that bit of renewable natural capital that's most at risk. So we want to ask what wildlife corridors do we want? What green belts do we want? What upland connectivity do we require? Um, what linkage do we need of a kind of green belt around the coast? What blue belts do we want? These are the big systems questions and you can't work out what can be safely damaged or what can be damaged with the least consequences without first deciding what the map is within which those bits fit. That's pretty critical to the calculation. Now, when it comes to the actual calculation, 
what the value of the harm is that needs to be compensated for to meet the aggregate natural capital rules. Um, uh, we need to make sure that this is a net environmental gain. So we've covered off the safe limits, but we need to go a bit further than that. So if you take how it works at the moment, you know, a developer will come along, you'll see a bit of, uh, or she'll see a bit of uh, uh, the environment and say, I want to concrete over that. So you say, well, what's the damage? And they'll say, well, this is the bit of environment. These are the particular fields we're taking. Um, uh, at the moment, they're covered in uh, intensive agriculture, for example. So there isn't much environment in them. And um, uh, as a result, the environmental damage is pretty limited. So the net environmental gain we have to provide is pretty limited too. Now, there's an enormous hole in that argument. And it's a massive problem in the planning system we have at the moment, and indeed in the way in which the net environmental principle, gain principle is being taken forward. And it's this. Those intensive agricultural fields could, of course, be translated into housing, and they might have more biodiversity covered in houses than they do covered in chemical, agrochemical pollutants. But of course, those fields could be something else. They could be playing fields. They could be woodlands. They could be uh, biodiversity-rich uh, reserves. And since these areas of land tend to be close to people and close to city, they're precisely the areas where the alternative to building houses on them or in intensive agriculture might be really enhanced natural capital. So you have to be clear what it is that the alternatives are, what the counterfactuals are, in order to do the valuation exercise then when you've done the valuation exercise, you have to relate it back to the system within which that asset fits. In this example I've been using, it might well be bits of the green belt. So measuring the harm is crucial and it needs to be properly contextualised before the net environmental gain principle can be designed and then the compensation worked out. Now the next bit is, where does the money go? that comes in the form of the compensation payments. Who gets it? And then what's it spent on? Now, uh, there are obvious reasons why local communities want to keep the benefits within the local area, since they're the uh, people who are going to be most impacted by the development. But if you take a systems approach to natural capital, and you're looking at natural capital uh, for the uh, whole of the country, and you're looking at the natural capital uh, uh, principle. It's not hard to see that you might get many more environmental bucks for your money by investing in, say, a large-scale wildlife corridor in a different bit of the country than you would by doing uh, uh, some uh, uh, tree planting and hedges and, and so on in the particular area that the project set. So as with the working out what the, what the impacts are on the country and the environment as a whole versus the particular and narrow locality. Similarly, there is a parallel uh, set of issues about whether we should use the money from these compensation payments generally or whether we should uh, make them very local. Now, there is a variant of this, which is the idea of biodiversity offset trading and the idea that developers can buy benefits elsewhere from the particular damage they might do in a particular location. And some people have gone further and suggested that some kind of environmental bank for these 
uh, compensation payments could be created. Risky, because you have to work out who is deciding what the offers are for environmental improvements elsewhere against the particular damage that's caused. And you have to be very careful about who actually is control, controls the way the money is spent and the credibility of the spending of that money. And that matters because most firms uh, move on from one development to the next, firms go bust, uh, different interests come to play, uh, whereas most environmental improvements, uh, serious improvements in aggregate natural capital are long term and require uh, credible commitments to stay the course to see they're delivered. For example, recreating a proper wildflower meadow will take at least a quarter of a century and maybe a lot longer to get to uh, a desired state. Well, how many companies in the development sector that exist today will be there in 25 years time and how could you know? So one needs to have credible commitments, bonds, payments, etc. My own view is that there should be a national nature fund, a bit like a sovereign welfare fund, into which all these various environmental payments, environmental taxes and charges, uh, these compensation payments should go, and they should be used against a 25-year plan of the enhancements for the economy as a whole. But this is clearly an open question, and um, uh, different people will take different views. But what is clear is two things. First of all, that unless these compensation payments are genuinely credible and genuinely enhancing, the scale of the development coming will see the natural environment in Britain in a worse state for the next generation than the current one. Uh, there's no evidence yet that we're on a rising and improving path, though in the next lecture we'll see what can and should be done to put us on that path. So that's one thing that's clear. The second thing is that who does the calculations, how the calculations are done, who gets the money and how it's spent are very much up for grabs too. And they matter and they matter in providing a credible framework. You know, uh, net environmental gain could be an enormously important part of the framework for delivering the overall objectives along with public goods and public money, or it could be, as many environmentalists fear, a license to trash, uh, in which essentially developers are able to minimise the contribution they make. The uh, calculations are extremely narrowly based, and uh, what happens is it's an excuse to uh, build and develop on lots of precious assets which should in any normal framework just be the ones you can't harm. And here's a final twist. There is a perverse incentive here. Supposing you're a landowner, you're a farmer, and you have some agricultural land right on the edge of a major urban conurbation. The value to you of that land for development is massively higher than it is for agriculture, let's say. So what you want to do is make it as attractive as possible for a developer to buy your land at a huge premium in order to build houses all over it. So what are you going to do? Are you going to look after your land and 
uh, do it in a, a biologically, a biodiversity, uh, environmentally nature-friendly way? Or are you going to trash it? Well, the answer is that the more you do to improve that land, to make it environmentally good, the less chance you've got of getting planning permission and the larger the compensation on net environmental gain will make be and therefore the lower the developer will pay a price to buy it off you. So there are some dangerous incentives here and they're dangerously perverse and of course in the development uh, example the obvious thing to do is to make sure that landowners don't get the development uplift which is a public good which comes from public policy not from private land management. And that tells you how risky this domain is and why we have to get the principles right. But if we get these right, then the aggregate natural capital uh, uh, for the uh, country as a whole cannot decline because compensation will make sure it does not decline. We will have changed the relative prices by making the polluters pay and we'll have provided the public goods with public money, uh, particularly in the agricultural sector. Put those three things together and we have the foundations for a credible uh, environmental policy going forward. We have the possibility of a greener Britain and uh, a more prosperous one at the same time, a more efficient economy. So those are the three principles. A net environmental gain is the third one of those. All that remains is to put them together into an overall environmental plan. And the next and final lecture will be looking at what that 25-year plan should comprise. Thank you.